Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, my name is Pete Bauer. And my name is Dorothea Bauer. And welcome to My Name is Not Steve. We are not named Steve. No, we are not. We are storytellers talking about storytelling. And this week we're going to talk about authentic stories and things that make them authentic and things that take away authenticity. A lot of the things that we're going to talk about today are things that we've noticed through our many years of disciplined movie watching. (laughs) (laughs) You mean sitting on our butt in our house and watching movies? We made a commitment. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't matter if I had homework. It didn't matter Mm -hmm. if you had errands. Nope. We would sit and Mm -hmm. we would watch. I got to tell you what, man. Taking out the garbage can wait. Hitchcock is clearly the priority. And my wife always understood that. (laughs) (laughs) Authentic stories, Dorothea. But before we get to that, though, we must do an update. We should do an update. Kneel and pray. So the good news about Kneel and Pray is that it's done. The story is completely done. We got really great feedback very positive feedback from our teen beta readers. So now we are in the process. And again, we talked about this last time where we're doing a lot of things for the first time. So it's kind of ugly as far as being efficient. So we're kind of inefficient in doing these things. But we have to do certain things with mail responders and setting up a website and and having all the things in place, the structure in place, so that in the future, the systems will all be ready to go. We still have some steps to do. We have some work to do with getting the um, the paperback book formatted so we can get the book cover done. And we're also looking at release dates. Yes, we are. As is common in our release date discussion, yes. you have changed your mind. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't changed my mind as much as become aware of trends. Okay. Yeah. We originally planned on releasing the book fairly soon. As soon as possible. But because of this information that we've come across about teen purchasing patterns and school schedules and things along those lines, we have decided to postpone it a little bit, which will be good so we can get all of our crap together. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that was the original reason for this sort of analysis was that we just had so much stuff to do behind the scenes before we made the book available. And trust me, after all the time and effort we put into these books, I want this book available as soon as possible. Actually, one of the things I've learned through this entire process is that as soon as I'm done with anything, I just want to put it out there. And this has made me be patient because, gosh, when you think about the first draft of the first book that I did. That you wanted to That I wanted put to put out, out there. there. And good <laughs> Lord. That would have been the beginning and end of the Pete Bauer career. Have you saved a copy of that? I'm sure there's one buried in the bowels of hell. I feel like you should (laughs) take an excerpt from it years from now when you're a very successful author as part of your autobiography (laughs) and be like, I started here. Yeah. Uh, See Gabby run. Gabby run fast. (laughs) No, it was pretty bad. But I have learned that we must be patient in this process and actually align these things to be put out at their most effective time. So we're looking online at the buying patterns of teenagers, and we anticipated that there'd be some sort of spike right before summer. Yes. So the the data we found online, at least so far, shows that that's true, and usually teens buy more in the May time frame, right before the end of school, and so they're going to read over the summer, and then they usually buy again in August 
which is near the end of summer and before they start school again. So Because they want to pretend that school is not starting and they do <laughs> not have homework to do. <laughs> so the, the combination of us needing to get some things behind the scenes done in order to maximize the rollout and also to align with potential buying patterns, it seemed like a good idea to probably wait till the April-May time frame to release the first book. And hopefully by that time, I'll have the second book out to our beta readers. And that's kind of my goal is, is use the month of March to finish up the second book and then send that out to beta readers for feedback before sending it to the editor. But I think that's a good lesson for all self-published authors, really, is that unless you're J.K. Rowling, the world is not waiting for you to release your book and you have to be patient because a lot of times you want to get the project off of your plate, you want to put it out there and you want readers to buy it and read it and absolutely love it. But if it's not the right time, it's not going to get out there. I actually have a slightly personal story about that. Uh-oh. I know. A friend of mine, she got me to start a blog online and she loves when people reblog things that you post or comment or do all that other stuff. And on this one particular thing I wrote, I had over a thousand likes or reblogs and she was freaking out about it. And I'm like, this was all timing. This has literally nothing to do with my post at all. This was just the fact that the topic I was writing about was very poignant at the time and people were very upset. And so I just took advantage of it. So timing is very important when you're releasing creative content. Yeah, you know, and I'm involved in a lot of independent publishing communities. And one of the interesting conversations that's come up recently is that people confuse being a writer with being a publisher. So people think that because they're self-publishing, that that's wrapped into the writing phase. And really, you don't need to be a writer to be a self-publisher, right? A self-publisher in and of itself just publishes something that is written. Usually it's something you've written, but it doesn't have to be. And I make that distinction because the publishing part is the business side of it, right? It's not writing, it's publishing. So now that I've written the book, I need to take that hat off and put on my publisher hat and then look at timing and market windows and things like that. So too many times people think that they combine the writing and publishing into one entity when really the writing is the creative part and the publishing is the business part. So obviously things are gonna change, things are gonna be different when you look at it from a business perspective as opposed to a creative endeavor. You actually have a writing hat. <laughs> I do. I should get you a publishing hat. <laughs> and then you can literally, rather than metaphorically, take off one hat and put on the other. That would, that would help, probably help everybody know where my brain is. <laughs> put on your thinking cap, Dad. My friends Jenny and Jeff, I mentioned them before with the movie Ready, Willing, and Able. They're so awesome. They always send me stuff, and they bought me a writer's baseball hat. So it says it's a black baseball hat with writer on it, just in case anyone wants to know. <laughs> and, but another thing they did is they were doing a documentary on some things, and they got to interview Tippi Hedren, who was in The Birds. Oh, my gosh. Right? We talked about The Birds. And so Jenny and Jeff, Jenny was so thoughtful. She's like one of my best friends. Uh, one of his favorite movies is The Birds. And so Tippi Hedren signed a personalized DVD of The Birds for me and signed a book about her experience working with Hitchcock. And then Jenny just mailed it to me. And so every once in a while, I get these really awesome things from Jenny and Jeff that are just amazing. So yeah, they're, they're the coolest people in the world. And one of those gifts was a black hat that says writer. The cool thing about the autograph DVD, though, is that it says to Pete who likes movies. And I think what we can take away from that is your name is Pete, 
not Steve. Ah, she didn't get it wrong. <laughs> that's probably because you weren't introducing yourself. <laughs> that's true. Someone else was introducing There you. have been times <laughs> where I've actually wondered if I'm saying my name at all. Because <laughs> it's, so, it's so often that people get it wrong. All right, let's get back to the show. Authentic stories, Dorothea. Authenticity in stories is so important. And that's something that we've defined for ourselves fairly recently when we've been watching and analyzing these stories. And something that we learned in our analysis was that the root cause of whether a story could be considered authentic, whether it's a book or it's a movie, is that it has to be honest and believable. Even if you're in a science fiction world or a fantasy world, you have to believe that what's happening is realistic. Like when you're reading a book, and the person needs to go overseas to investigate something and they just happen to stumble across the secret chest their family, who is very wealthy, has been hiding in storage for years that has satellite phones and foreign passports and money and, and you're just a normal 16-year-old girl. Not very believable, in my personal opinion. Convenient, however, because you also happen to be on the run from some international spy ring. I know. So that comes in handy. Those 16-year-olds... They know how to get in trouble. <laughs> but the the issue that we're really talking about when it comes to believability, it, it sometimes it's tied to logic or if there's too much coincidence, right? Like I was reading a story about this person that was about to go work overseas in the Middle East. It had clandestine potential. And so her best friend happened to have an encrypted satellite phone. Doesn't everyone? Right, because he was a hacker. And I'm like... Well, that's just so convenient, and that erodes away at believability. I would believe that the hacker could encrypt a satellite phone, but just happening to have an encrypted satellite phone kind of loses me a little bit. Plus, it's just way too easy for the main character. Right. It'd be better if they didn't have one, right? I mean, yeah. you want to set as many obstacles in their path as possible. Now, I know why they did it. They wanted the main character to have a, a way to communicate with a remote resource, which could also hack into a ton of things and help them find information they wouldn't normally get out in the field. But it still just didn't ring true, and then it becomes inauthentic. So again, we go back to, is the story believable or not? And we have a few examples of that that we will discuss. Yeah, you know, you thought of one which I thought was brilliant because it's it's a very good movie that I don't think a lot of people saw. But it's it's one of the most authentic romantic love stories that I've seen in a really long time. 500 Days of Summer. Yeah. Now, what's that about? 500 Days of Summer is about a male protagonist, Tom, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and his relationship with a woman named Summer, played by Zoe Deschanel. And it lasts for 500 days. Wow. I know. I bet you didn't see that coming. <laughs> no, I didn't. I thought it was like 300 days. But the thing about the movie is that a lot of people didn't see it coming, was that the relationship did end, and they did break up, and they did move on. And that didn't lessen the beauty of the love story or what they meant to each other, but it rang very true because it was a love story that didn't necessarily have a happy ending. Right. And it wasn't a sad ending necessarily either. It was just that two people came together and they clicked for a while, but then they weren't the right person for them for the long term. And so that relationship ran its course over 500 days. And then afterwards, they both find people that they're supposed to be with. I dated girls in college where I thought it was really nice, but we just kind of grew apart. It was a really honest example of that type of relationship at that time in your life when you're out of high school and you're starting to try to get into more serious relationships. It was really good. And it was also very entertaining because the way the story was told would jump around. So it'd go from day one to day 375. 
But the fantastic part was that you would start on maybe day three and they're in the elevator and they're flirting and they're talking and then it immediately cuts to day 400 and he's disheveled, his hair's a mess, he's depressed, he's walking out of the elevator and... That should not be funny, but the fact that it cut from one to the other consistently made it very, very funny. Yeah, and then it would go back. And and one of the best scenes, because it perfectly exemplified what happens in your brain. After she broke up with him, he's going to see her again at a party. And so it goes to a split screen where on one side is the way he saw it was going to play out. And on the other side is the way it really played out. And they are very different. And they're very different. So it's so cool because you... If you like someone and you're all excited about seeing them, you have this image, you play out in your brain the best case scenario. And from a movie perspective, it was visually pretty amazing how they were able to tell that. And again, that was a very honest, authentic way to express something that a lot of people have gone through in these types of relationships. Well, and it does throw you off, to be honest, when you're having a significant meeting with someone that you haven't seen in a while Whether you want to or not, you tend to rehearse the conversation in your head. Right. And when it doesn't go according to that conversation that you dreamed about beforehand, it does kind of throw you off because you're very unprepared. And what's awesome about that scene is it goes off the rails almost immediately. Very immediately. It's so funny. (laughs) It's so funny and sad at the same time, but very authentic love story. Uh, Not a romantic comedy, not a princess story, not someone that, not where they fall in love and, and they have no problems in the world and they live happily ever after. It was a satisfying love story that just didn't work out. So it's a very good movie that we have completely spoiled for you if you have not seen it already. But the spoiler is kind of in the title, so I don't really feel a little bit Yeah, once she's introduced as Summer, you can maybe figure it out. So a really good authentic non-romantic comedy is Saving Private Ryan. I just think it's a tremendously realistic war movie and comes from a very authentic place. A lot of times when you watch war movies, especially World War II movies, America has very noble music in the background. The American soldiers are very much the heroes. They have hero shots and there are dollies and pans and glorious sunrises. And it's beautiful at the end of the movie. Waving American flags. Yeah, it's it's fantastic because we were the heroes and we got to come in and save the day. And as much as that's enjoyable to watch as a movie, from everything that I've heard from actual soldiers, the truth of war is that there are never any good options. And that is what Saving Private Ryan really exhibits very well. Yeah, it, it puts the main characters into an impossible situation of trying to find one guy in the middle of D-Day, in the middle of Europe, to get him out of the war because all of his other brothers had died on the same day. And so it's an impossible mission. It starts off with D-Day, with a very brutal opening of of the landing in France on D-Day. And veterans who saw that movie said that that opening was the most realistic portrayal of what they actually went through that they'd ever seen. It was very authentic in that respect. Because from what the veterans said, they would be talking to someone and they would turn around and then they'd turn back and the person would be dead. And that was just the way that day went. So we talk about authenticity from 500 Days of Summer is that it approached a relationship from a very honest perspective. And some of the authenticity when it comes to saving Private Ryan is the inherent violence of war and the inherent what's called the fog of war 
where in the fog of war, in the middle of a battle, you can make the wrong decision, where you may freeze up or what, whatever. And so all these characters are facing all these different things, and, and the reality of the world that they exist in is a very brutal one. And they're trying to do this one hopeful thing in the middle of all this catastrophe. But the environment is very authentic, as opposed to some movies that are overtly violent for entertainment's sake. This was authentically violent, to be realistic and honest to the event. There's so much conflict inherent in that story. But the fantastic part about that movie is that the characters don't necessarily get along. And the way that the plot unfolds is not entirely peaceful. And some of the characters don't even believe in the mission. But at the end of the day, you look at all of them and you don't fault any of them for thinking or believing what they do. Yeah, because they're all come from an honest place. You know, some people would go, yeah, we have to save them. I saw a lot of people die today. Why is this guy special? And there's all those conflicting emotions. But at the end of the day, they do their job. So it's also a very good movie. Now, one thing that can make it inauthentic. So we talked about the realistic authenticity in saving Private Ryan from a war violence perspective. One of the things that's, and it's gotten a lot worse lately, is the use of computer-generated graphics in movies, especially when they come to villains. And the greatest example that I've seen recently, this isn't the only example, but the greatest example I've seen recently in the, is in the Hobbit movies. No. <laughs> you was, dislike those movies? Yeah, a little bit. I would have never guessed. I know, I know. What? I have family that love those movies, <laughs> so I don't want to harp on them too much. But what mm-hmm. I want to... <laughs> so he says. Yeah. Y'all weren't here when you had to see it. Y'all? <laughs> We're in Georgia all of a sudden? I have said y'all my entire life. Where have you been? <laughs> I guess I was out. Anyway, so in the first Lord of the Rings trilogy... All the action sequences were with real people, either, you know, actors, right, or stunt people, either dressed up as the people in pursuit of the ring or the bad guys, the orcs or what have you. In the Hobbit movies, and we can talk about why I don't like prequels. In another episode. In another episode. We don't have enough time for your dislike (laughs) of the Hobbit trilogy. No. But the biggest flaw that they had in that movie is that all of the the bad guys were computer generated, or at least look computer generated, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they were. And here's why this is the problem. Our brains aren't stupid. So they can recognize and know... And, th- and I'm talking from a very primal level, whether we are in danger or not, whether there's a viable threat or not. And part of the entertainment experience, whether it's reading a book or watching a movie or riding a roller coaster, is that you have to feel like you are teetering near danger, but in a comfortable place. When you're on a roller coaster, you know you're strapped in, but you still want to be scared, right? You still want to have that fear factor. Well, there definitely is one. <laughs> you don't ride a lot of roller coasters <laughs> when you're up that high looking at the ground and then you fall. It's a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's supposed to be scary. But you also know that since the people just got off in front of you, that you're probably going to be OK. That's true. I do love roller coasters. And yeah, I you're did... a bit of a thrill seeker, actually. That's true. Which is probably not a smart decision, given how clumsy I am as a person. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe that's because your whole life, life itself has been thrilling. Because you never know when you're going to be flat on your face. I remember talking to you one day, (laughs) and you're like, your life is so much more interesting than everyone else's. (laughs) Well, things just happened to you. (laughs) Well, because I had gotten a cup out of the cabinet. This isn't even an interesting story. But 
it like twisted out of my hand <laughs> as I was reaching for it. And so I did this whole bouncing juggling act trying to catch it before it hit the floor. And I did. <laughs> like that's a win. It's <laughs> like the other. Well, how long ago was it you were gesturing with your phone and it flew across the room and landed and it shattered the screen? wanted to be a part of the story. <laughs> Yeah. Look, the phone is fine. Well, you you did fall down brushing your teeth, so I was like seven. That doesn't change. That. <laughs> That's not a defense. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of seven year olds out there who've never fallen down brushing their teeth. Well, they're just not as adventurous as I was. <laughs> so anyway, our brains know when we're in danger, right? So so your brain your knows. Your brain knows nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally failing. So your brain knows when you're in potential danger. And they used to do this really good with the James Bond movies where they would always start the movie with an amazing stunt. Like there's one movie, I forget. I think it's um, GoldenEye where they had a plane go over the edge. I, I don't think there was anyone in the plane. Went over the edge of this cliff and it's going down and James Bond rides a motorcycle off the cliff, flies down, catches up to the plane and goes inside the open door. And that was a real stunt. It is not my favorite, however. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm Do you just... want to know what my favorite stunt is? What? You know what it is. Nope. Yep, it's from the Bourne movies. Oh, yeah. Right? Right. Amazing. It was amazing because of not only the stunt, but there was a cameraman involved in the stunt. So it's you've seen it in the commercials. It's, it's where Jason Bourne jumps from one building and through a window of another building, and then the cameraman followed him in t- into that building, which meant the cameraman jumped with the actor or the stunt guy so cool yeah but the point is is those are so cool because we know there's real people attached to them our brain can recognize that and what makes these cgi characters less effective is that we know they're not authentic we know they're not real so when i was watching the second hobbit movie that was the only one i saw by the way when i was watching the second hobbit movie every time they were attacked by computer things i was never concerned for their safety because my brain knew they weren't real even though they looked realistic and all that other stuff, they weren't real. And your brain knows the difference. It's kind of like when you watch a movie from 10 years ago where the where the special effects looked really cool then, and you look at it now going, God, that's kind of stupid, right? So your brain knows that there's no real peril in play. And so I became very passive watching all the action sequences in The Hobbit. I was not engaged at all because I'm like, I just want this computer game scenario to be over. Well, there are a lot of people who would disagree with you. (laughs) And a lot of them are are in my family. Yes, but that is a valid point. There has to be a real element of danger in your stories, whether that's books or movies. Right. We do have another example of an inauthentic movie. Well, and I love this (laughs) comparison. So this is probably my favorite comparison of the show. So go ahead. It's happened multiple times throughout Hollywood's history, and they still haven't learned their lesson. (laughs) No, they haven't. So (laughs) that's fantastic. But we do have a comparison, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I love this. This is, to me, the best comparison because it shows the difference between authentic. Authenticity doesn't necessarily have to be realistic. And that's really kind of hard to understand until you hear this example. So go ahead. So recently, a movie came out called Exodus, which was terrible. And from all the reviews that I've read and the political upheaval that was associated with the movie, it was not a good movie. And that was because it was very inauthentic. It wasn't true to the demographics of the people who lived in the area. It wasn't true to the biblical story or the people who believed in the story. And it just missed on all the notes. But there is a movie about the Exodus story that rings very true for a lot of people. And that is called The Prince of Egypt. 
Yeah, which is an animated story where people break into song, but it's more authentic. It's less realistic, but it's far more authentic to the to the truth of the story with Moses trying to get the Hebrews out of Egypt. It also didn't help that Christian Bale called Moses had a mental disease like schizophrenia or something. It doesn't help when you're about to open a movie that Christians and Jews want to see. Yeah. Not the best marketing stunts that <laughs> yeah. I've seen. Yeah, he did not put on <laughs> his marketing <laughs> hat, obviously. So back to Exodus. Now, we've gone through some religious topics, and I don't want to go down that path this episode. But part of the authenticity of the Exodus story is that there's two things that are never talked about. So this Exodus story, the recent one, was really remaking the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie, which wasn't all that authentic either, and then adding a gladiator component to it, right? I love how Moses has like a chariot that he's yeah. going into battle with yeah. in, the, well, in the movie trailer. Yeah, I, I like how that was sketched out in the Bible. Yeah. yeah. But what the authentic story could have been, and no one's ever told this story in movies before when it comes to Moses, is there are two basic things. The first is that Moses is a stutterer or he has a speech impediment. Uh, the Bible says he's slow of speech. And God asks him to be his spokesman, right? That's pretty awesome. And Moses is like, uh, I really don't want to. Yeah. And God's like, but you really should. And Moses goes, can I bring my brother? And God says, fine. That's part <laughs> of the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so what's interesting, and we never see this, is that when Moses is talking to Pharaoh about the warnings uh, that God has given him, it's actually Aaron telling most of those because Moses tells Aaron and then Aaron speaks for him. But later on, they go to the desert, and Moses starts speaking for himself when he comes down from the mountain, and he has the Ten Commandments and whatnot. But the important thing that no one ever talks about is that God wants 100% of you. And the one thing that's always holding Moses back is his fear of public speaking. Even though he does all of these things, he has this fear of speaking in front of people because of his impediment. And you know this because at one point they need water in the desert and God says, well, just tap the rock with the staff and the water comes out. And he does. And then they, they spend 40 years in the desert and they get almost near the promised land. And so just think of how Moses has grown, right? And his faith and all that other stuff. And he gets to the promised land and they need water again. Except this time God says, don't tap the water, speak, and the water will come out. So you can think of it this way. Don't tap the rock with your staff, Moses. Stutterer, I want you to speak. And Moses taps the rock. And for that, he was not allowed to go into the promised land. Right. So he was obedient for 40 years through miraculous things. I mean, you know, God provided food out of nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? And But that disobedience, that lack of giving that last little bit, that inherent fear that he had since he was a child to God, cost him something. That's an awesome story that's never told there are so many fascinating parts to the Exodus story from a cinematic perspective right, that are right. never explored. For example, the brother versus brother. Moses was raised with the Pharaoh. There had to be some emotional conflict there aside from we are now on opposing sides of a war. Right. This was brother versus brother, and he left and he abandoned his brother for a very long time. Right. And there are going to be some issues there, especially since Moses was never a threat to the throne. So that could be explored. It's not really explored in the Bible, but Hollywood's taken liberties before, <laughs> and they've never gone down that path. And one of the most fascinating aspects to the story that's really never, ever discussed is the fact that every plague was an attack on an Egyptian god. Right. And so if you think of what God's doing, 
What God is doing with these plagues is saying, listen, I am greater than all of your gods. You worship the Nile, I fill it with blood. You worship frogs, they fall from the sky. So in all of them, the the cows, everything, there was a deity attached to every plague. And God was just saying, basically, I'm stronger than all your gods, even the firstborn. Because when someone became Pharaoh, and I was reading about this recently, when someone became Pharaoh, after about 30 years or something, they were considered a god. And Ramses lasted 60, he lived 60 years. So he was a god for 30 years, right, in those people's eyes. His firstborn son would be the heir to the kingdom, and therefore he would be the next god. And so the last plague is, I'm going to kill your god, your actual son, your next god in line. That's so awesome that you never hear about, right? That God's saying, listen, I know you worship these things, but I am stronger than all of them. And I'm so strong, I took a stutterer as my mouthpiece. And we don't ever hear that story. And that's an authentic version of the Exodus story that no one ever talks about because it's probably too religious for the filmmakers and stuff. But again, that's another part of the story that could be totally heartbreaking. In the same way that God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, God asked Moses to be a participant in killing his nephew. Right. Yeah, his adopted nephew. His adopted nephew. Yeah. Right. There's just so many layers to this story, authentic layers, that don't involve chariots and big (laughs) special effects, right? I mean, look, the special effects are not there to be special. They're there to show the power of God in this story, right? And so these guys, the Hollywood guys, because they're not coming from an authentic faith perspective, they get caught up in the special effects. So there are a lot of examples of authentic versus inauthentic stories, and we've gotten to talk about a few today, but there are a few more that we're really not going to have a lot of time to go into. But Yeah, we'll run through them. Just a few examples. But for example, there's the relationship on the television show Castle, which is very authentic. You're versus... talking about the, the main characters, right? The, the Castle and Beckett uh, love relationship, now they're married. But even with the supporting characters, all of those relationships, I think, are handled very well. Versus the characters on Bones, the main love story on Bones, which I think is completely ridiculous. I know there's a huge fan base that will disagree with me, but... Almost every single episode significantly talked about their relationship, and then they didn't get together for like six or seven years. And, you know, props to y'all for your patience, because I could not put up with that crap. Yeah, you know, and that was the old style. That was the old paradigm in Hollywood is that, you know, you keep the people apart. It happened on JAG. Oh my gosh, on JAG, it was awful. But I mean, (laughs) it's like you keep them apart until the very end, and then there's some sort of marriage show. Whenever people got married, you knew it was the end of the series, right? But what Castle did is that they just said, well, we're, they're going to get together sooner than later, so we're not even going to worry about that. We're, and it just became a more authentic, we keep using that word today, authentic sort of television relationship as much as they can be when it's a TV show versus this one, which is, is, is I heard someone say it best, the old paradigm had that no matter how close that these two characters got, at the beginning of the next episode, their relationship was reset back to where it was. Yes. So there was very little growth. They'd have moments and then nothing would happen. And that's just not satisfying. Another common subject where inauthentic storytelling is the norm is in relation to disabilities, both physical and especially mental. With mental disabilities, what tends to happen is you're either a genius or a serial killer. And there are very few stories that I've seen that are very authentically told about people with mental disabilities. And two examples of those are the Silver Linings Playbook with Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence and then Monk, which is a television show. And the last thing I want to cover kind of ties into our approach with Gabby Wells. 
And there's a thing with with movies that have characters of faith in it that really struggle, in my mind, with authenticity. And a lot of these stories, whether they're movies or books, they treat God as Santa Claus, right? So I have all of these problems, and God magically just answers all of my prayers. And I know some of them are, I call it like Christian fantasy, especially the movies. I've had real events that have been kind of very small, but very important to me that I felt that that God was helping me out. And so if you want to tell that story in a two-hour time frame, you're going to have a lot of these events happen, and it just seems like God's Santa Claus, when oftentimes you may ask for something and then not get an answer for five years. And that's why it was so important. If we were going to have our main character, Gabby, be someone who's struggling with understanding her faith, we wanted that to be from an authentic place. And so we wanted it to not be where God is Santa Claus, but God asks a lot of her, and sometimes she does it really well, and sometimes she sucks at it or doesn't even want to do what God wants her to do right? And this actually happened in the Bible where, you know, God asks a prophet to go speak. And he's like, I don't want to speak. And then, you know, puts him in a whale and drops him off at the place. <laughs> goes, well, I want you to speak anyway. So to me, that's an authentic story, you know, is that in anything, if you're trying to achieve something and there's obstacles in the way, you want that struggle to be authentic, not that, that God's some sort of magic man that's going to show up and save the day at the end of the day, because that's not the point of the journey. And I'm really looking forward to reading Gabby's journey in that way. And we forget, too, that with those people that God has asked throughout history to speak for him and act for him, we always assume they're heroes. And they are. They're biblical heroes. But they can also be kind of jerks. Because I've read a lot of St. Paul, and he was probably a pain in the butt to be around. Yeah. He was probably one guy you would not invite to dinner too often. No. Yeah. And one of the... the most touching responses I got from our teen readers is that this struggle, this internal struggle of Gabby's is what they're going through. And that's what we are shooting for. Because when you're a teenager, you have to figure out what to do with what you were raised in. You know, the, the healthy parts of your family and the unhealthy parts, the healthy parts of your faith and the unhealthy parts. And you got to figure out as you become an adult, what part of your childhood you're taking with you. And what was so great is that the teen's totally understood and believed and identified with Gabby's struggle with going, sometimes my faith is awesome. Sometimes it doesn't make a lick of sense. Sometimes I think it sucks. Sometimes it seems impossible. And sometimes it's really nurturing. And that whole conflicting emotion thing was very realistic and authentic to them. And, and it was very touching to hear their responses, their, their personal responses of how that mirrored what they were going through. So the <laughs> overall lesson of today is that we hope Gabby Wells is authentic. Right. I mean, that is the point. <laughs> so, Dorothea, have you ever dealt with inauthentic things? I deal with inauthentic conversations every day of my life. <laughs> wow. What kind of, <laughs> where do you live? <laughs> uh, it often happens at work yeah. when you'll be passing by a coworker in the hallway <laughs> and they'll ask, how are you? And then by the time you turn to smile at them, they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, oh. Yeah, I always uh, jokingly ask, do you really want to know? And that always stops them and they go, what? I'm like, I'm sorry, you said, how are you? I just want to know if you really wanted to know. I'll say hi (laughs) if you want. That's preferable. I would prefer if people said just hi or nice to see you or have a good day. But I hate when people ask, how are you? Because they're lying. They don't want to know. (laughs) Some of the most inauthentic experiences in my life occurred when I was in the theater department in school and even after school, it didn't really matter. Just when I was involved in theater, because there's a lot of really awesome people I've met in in the theater world and the entertainment industry. But there are some people that 
they took the job and made it a lifestyle, right? For me, acting was just what I did, and then I'd go home and do something else, right? For them, it was the, it was the lifestyle. So it became, they were very broad in their gestures and grand and always pontificating and gesturing with cigarettes, and it was so bad. There, there was one actor when I worked in television that every single day he would ask me, you know, how I was doing and how my wife was doing and how you were just a baby. So how you were doing. And he was very sincere about it, or at least he appeared to until I realized every single day he asked me the same like five questions in the same tone, in the same way. So after about, I don't know, a couple months of this, I wrote down the answers ahead of time. <laughs> and so the next time he came up, he's like, hey, Pete, how is I'm like, let me save you the trouble. And I just gave him the piece of paper. <laughs> it's like, how am I? I'm whatever. How's my wife? How's my kid? Whatever. And he just looked at me like like he was caught. You know what I mean? Like he's like, damn it. He's found me out. And then he didn't ask me those questions anymore. He was still nice to me, but it was just like, look, I don't, to your point, like, you know, you're. I think you're a little pet peevish about the how are you, but. Uh, I am. It is one of my pet peeves. But I, you know, it's just one of those very simple ways that you can say, listen, I don't mind. I would love for you to really care about my wife and our new baby. If you really care about my wife and new baby, if you don't, just don't ask. All right. So here's the key to anyone listening. Never ask Dorothea how she's doing. I'm a really private person anyway, so I'm not going to want to answer that question, even if you're, like, my best friend. You're so odd. You are so, like, where did you come from? (laughs) I don't understand you at all. I'm like Ron Swanson in Parks and Recreation. (sighs) You're just odd. You're like a pod person. Nope. All right. So you ready for our spoiler alert? Yes, let's do it. All right. Our spoiler alert today is... If... The main character showcases a unique talent in the beginning of a story. It is that unique talent that they will use to save the day. Now, I have a great example of this because this is the first time, even before I was really doing this sort of analysis of things, when I was in high school, I think it was high school, there was a movie called Johnny B. Good with Anthony Michael Hall. It was after his awesome like breakfast club days and he was transitioning into teen and young adult stories that are a little older. So he was playing a high school kid, high school football player, I think. It's so odd. It, it opens up with him like throwing a knife into like a piece of wood from a distance, right? So he's just, you know, and, and it hits, you know, and he just keeps doing it. And I'm like, that is the weirdest thing <laughs> that any kid has as a hobby, right? So I go, I bet he uses that to get out of whatever is going to happen to him. So somehow in the story, they get involved and they, they I don't know, do something to tick off a, a drug dealer. I don't know, money or something or one of his friends does. So they're, they're hunting down these kids, uh, the drug dealer is. And guess what happens at the end of the movie? I have no idea. All right. Well, let me express it to you in okay. the best way I can. You ready? Yeah, I need to prepare myself. Okay. Okay. So mm-hmm. Anthony Michael Hall is one-on-one with the drug dealer. No. No, it is, and it's really dangerous. What? Yeah. I know, but here's the great thing. He has a skill, a very unique skill. That he that hasn't been established. Uh, barely, like only obviously. No. So he pulls a knife out of his back pocket because he's always carrying one, I guess. Oh well, I guess goodness. if you have the skill, you'd kind of do that. So he takes the knife out. Isn't he a high school student? Is that allowed? I, it, what, this was like the 80s and 90s. Things are different back then. Oh, okay. So he takes the knife and he flings it. 
And right when the guy's about to kill him, he flings it and it hits him in the chest. <gasps> I know. Wow. I, I didn't know you'd be so involved. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the funny I thing. I held it for a I know, while. <laughs> You did a great job. I'm very proud of you. Dorothy Bauer, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the funny thing, though. The bad guy, drug dealer dude, gets hit in the chest with this knife. And he looks at it and goes, like, as he's about to die, is surprised, right? This is how he died. No one else in the theater is. <laughs> and he's like, a knife? And then he collapses. And it's a shame because really good storytelling, we talked about this before, like with Rear Window, is that the, the main character is a photographer and he uses his flashbulbs to try to get him out of a situation. That makes sense. So th that's the right that's approach. That's exactly what Johnny B. Good did, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. But being a photographer is not, is not abnormal. Flinging a knife across, like, I don't know, 15 yards into a bullseye repeatedly is weird. I think you're wrong. <laughs> like in, in Hunger Games, it's, you know, they established that obviously to hunt, Katniss is good with a bow, right? So it doesn't surprise anyone that she uses a bow to kill people. And that's actually a very interesting part of the books is that um, in the games, because she's so good at archery, she's like, they've probably figured out I hunt by now. <laughs> which is yeah. technically illegal <laughs> right so anyway that a spoiler so if your main character has a very unique talent that is above and beyond what normal people would have they're probably going to use it at the end of the story to save the day or will they <laughs> who knows really you know what's going to happen we're going to use this podcast to save the day would this be a skill though it i is. mean how many listeners do we really have <laughs> I didn't say I would save a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there we have it, Dorothea. Authenticity. Uh, authenticity. Important. All right. So if you would like to, please comment in the comment section. Even if you wouldn't like to, just do it. Do it. <laughs> also, um, there's a link on our blog to go to iTunes and rate the show. Uh, we had a, a friend of ours, Barbie, who, who rated the show right after we mentioned it in our last episode. And for that, Barbie, you rock. Woohoo! So anyway, it does help. It does help that when people are searching iTunes for different sort of things, they'll see whether the show has value. And hopefully, <laughs> the few of you out there think this is a value. The more people who listen to the show, the more people we can save. <laughs> With our unique talent. <laughs> the future is in your hands. Tell your friends. <laughs> Uh, gosh, this, I didn't realize we were this important. We're saving mankind. Three listeners at a time. So if you would like to email us, please feel free to do so. Our email is contactus at sunlightpress.com. That's S-O-N-L-I-G-H-T. Press. Dot com. Yes. And if your name is Steve and you want to defend it. We don't care. <laughs> do your best. So that's it, Dorothea. Number five, done and done. Yes. All right. So I'm just going to keep saying yes, strangely, for the rest of the show. That's great. Well, I'm glad the show's almost <laughs> over. <laughs> All right. So we will see you guys next time. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Say goodbye, Dorothea. Yes. <laughs>